As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. What are you arguing with them about, he asked. A man in the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought you my son who is possessed by a spirit and has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. You unbelieving generation, Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So they brought him. When the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered, it has often thrown him into fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for one who believes. Immediately the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the impure spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently, and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him to his feet, and he stood up. After Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, Why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, This kind can come out only by prayer. They left that place and passed through Galilee. Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were, because he was teaching his disciples. He said to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days he will rise. But they did not understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him about it. They came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them, What were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. Sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, Anyone who wants to be first must be very last and the servant of all. He took a little child whom he placed among them. Taking the child in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me does not welcome me but the one who sent me. Teacher, said John, we saw someone driving out demons in your name, and we told him to stop because he was not one of us. Do not stop him, Jesus said, for no one who does a miracle in my name can in the next moment say anything bad about me, for whoever is not against us is for us. Truly I tell you, anyone who gives you a cup of water in my name because you belong to the Messiah will certainly not lose their reward. If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them if a large millstone were hung around their neck and they were thrown into the sea. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go into hell where the fire never goes out. And if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell, where the worms that eat them do not die and the fire is not quenched. Everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can you make it salty again? Have salt among yourselves and be at peace with each other. Jesus then left that place and went into the region of Judea and across the Jordan. Again, crowds of people came to him, as, and as was his custom, he taught them. Some Pharisees came and tested him by asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? What did Moses command you? He replied. They said, 
Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. It was because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote you this law, Jesus replied. But at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Amy was ambitious. I love it. I think I might have told her the wrong thing, but... um, but no, she read. So, um, <clears throat> yeah. So we are um, going to continue, um, kind of looking through the the book of Mark. I, I feel like I need to like reintroduce myself this morning. And do you know why? Because I'm not wearing a hat. Like somebody said this morning, it's like Grant and hat. Your hat, like you're like one person. And I'm like, I thought that was great. But I've literally walked into places without a cap on, and they have not recognized me initially. So I thought maybe. I love it. I love it. I think I wear a hat 360 plus 500. Yeah, a lot. So, um, but for you guys this morning, I chose not to. So we are in Mark chapter 9, um, continuing on in this story. And and, and so last week, Pastor Dan, we looked at this passage, um, and he kind of ended with, if you look at Mark chapter 9, the transfiguration, and and this is is that um, moment in which Jesus takes... Um, three of his disciples, he takes Peter, he takes James and John, and they, again, they go up to the kind of this mountain, they get away from the other disciples, they get away from the crowd, and it's at this moment in which he reveals his glory to them, um, something that must have been absolutely astonishing, amazing, to the fact that they were literally on their faces because they had not seen something like this before. And, uh, and then, you know, so Jesus, yeah, reveals himself. Elijah's with him. We, we, you know, talked about Moses this morning. Moses is with him. It's an amazing, amazing moment. So, yeah, he reveals it. And then we get to starting in verse 14, um, where he's going to heal a boy from a demonic spirit. And, and then there's going to be this discourse, this discussion among the disciples, that is probably a discussion that we've had either with ourselves or with those around us, which really begs this question, which is the title of my message morning, like, who is the greatest? (laughs) Like, who is the greatest? Because they're going to argue about that among themselves within what they still, we'll, we'll, we'll come back to this, but what they still believe that Jesus is going to be, they know he's the Messiah, but again, what kind of Messiah is he? He's the one that is coming to save, but to save from what, through what, how is he going to do that? So like many young Jewish men, you know, they were again looking for a Messiah that was going to come and establish a physical kingdom, a physical rule, that they were going to overthrow the Roman government, that there would be this new nation that Jesus would establish. And so as we will see here in a minute, these men are going, man, who gets to kind of sit, like who's going to be his right hand guy? Like, is there going to be order in that? But again, we'll, we'll come to that here in a little bit. But what I'd love to do real quickly, just to the people around you, is um, what, 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 what does greatness look like? Like, in our culture, in our society today, what does greatness look like? So just take a couple minutes and answer that question. What does greatness look like in our society, um, in our culture?
All right, let's, um, why don't we share real quickly, some people kind of shout out, what does greatness look like within our culture, within our society today? What do you think? Wealth. Wealth. Excellent, yeah. Wealth, what else? Achievement. Okay, yeah, being a celebrity, YouTube celebrity, right? Intelligent. Superiority, okay. Yeah, the best at something. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, those are good. Any any other ones? I mean, those are those are yeah, pretty much hit the hit the mark on what I was thinking too. So yeah, we kind of have as a culture, we kind of have an idea of what it means to to, to be the greatest or what we need to get there to achieve. Like we heard, you know, Andy said success or um, to, to achieve to be great, whether it's in a corporation, in the sports world, within fame all those kind of things, and I think if we're truly honest with ourselves, at least I would say this about me, you know, how important is this for us to, to impress others? How important is it for us to kind of make our name known, to kind of stand out in a crowd, to separate ourselves from those around us um, in a way that impresses others? Um, I'm a people pleaser. Um, if you know me, um, it's, it's kind of something that I've always struggled with. You know, Cinderella said a pastor of mine used to say, um, that sometimes your greatest weakness also kind of can be your greatest strength. And so I would say that being a people pleaser for me can be a weakness, but also can be a strength depending on the situation. But I know for my personal struggles or just personally how important it is for me to impress others, you know, to be able to have them look at me and be impressed by what they see or, you know, what they know about me. So I think if we're honest, we all struggle at some point in our lives and maybe it's not in every situation, but there may be a situation, whether it's in your family, whether it's in the workplace, whether it's in the church community, um, you know, whether it's at the gym or whatever it might be, where you just, you struggle because you want to impress people, you want them to see you and maybe see that little bit of greatness <laughs> that is in you. And so we're going to come to that here uh, soon. But again, we see, we pick up in verse 14 real quickly, that again, Jesus and, and the three disciples, they come off of, I'm sorry, I'm going to keep walking away from this. And I'm used to going back and forth, so I'm going to try my best here to uh, stay right here. But we see that they come off the mountain. It says they saw a large crowd in verse 14 around them, and the teachers of the law arguing with them. So they come down, they see the disciples are, are surrounded by this, this crowd, these, this group of, of scribes and Pharisees, these religious men. And uh, there, there's an argument that's been taking place, right? And so I can see them kind of rushing down. As soon as, as, soon, as soon as as soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. Okay, so there's this argument taking place between the scribes, the Pharisees, religious leaders, with the remaining nine disciples. Jesus comes into the picture. Everybody runs to him. They're overwhelmed. They're astonished by him. They run to greet him. And then Jesus comes and says, what are you arguing with them about, he asked. We think he's actually saying this to the scribes and not the disciples. So he's asking these religious men, why are you arguing with my disciples? What are you arguing about? And then it says in verse 17, a man in the crowd answered, teacher, I brought you my son who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him into the ground. He foams at the mouth and gnashes his teeth and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. They could not. It's interesting because just a couple chapters earlier, they were able to do that very thing. 
They were given the power and the ability to be able to cast out demons and to heal the sick. And we just see a couple chapters down the road, they're not able to do this. For some reason, that the, the demon's not responding to them. And so they're frustrated. They're feeling defeated. They're feeling, why can't we do it this time? And the Pharisees, I think, are having an opportunity, the scribes, to kind of go, yeah, yeah, you're not all you think you are. And, you know, so they're kind of having this argument that's happening. Um, but again, this man said, this is my boy. And, and he says, he foams at the mouth again, gnashes his teeth, becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. And then look at Jesus' reaction in verse 19. It says, oh, unbelieving generation. Unbelieving generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Just bring the boy to me. Jesus kind of sounds a little frustrated, doesn't he? He kind of sounds like he's kind of fed up a little bit or with his patience, but he said, but it's interesting because when he's saying, oh, you unbelieving generation, is, is he referring to the, the Pharisees? Is he referring to this? This exasperated this father who is just at the end, or maybe his his disciples. Is he is he talking about his disciples when he when he makes that statement? We don't know for sure. Maybe probably all three. <laughs> you know, I mean, sometimes I feel like he's saying that about me. Oh, you unbelieving generation, right? You you Grant, you're so frustrating sometimes. Right? And, and so, yeah, but he, so he makes that statement. So he says, says get, just bring the boy to me. So they brought him. When the spirit saw Jesus, again, it's interesting, right? This, this evil spirit recognizes, knows who Jesus is, knows the power that Jesus has, knows his fate um, in the end. But he says, he immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. So Jesus asked the boy's father in verse 21, how long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered, it has often thrown him in to, into fire or water to kill him. But if you do anything, but, oh, sorry, so, but if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. What is Jesus' response to this? What does he say? Can someone read verse 23? This is the beginning. If you can, if you can, if you can, wait, if I can, right? He says, you know, Jesus says, everything is possible for him who believes, for him who believes. I think that's really interesting how Jesus responds to this father. It says, a man seemed unsure if Jesus could do anything, but the if wasn't, I don't think in regard to what Jesus could do. I think the if was regard to kind of the man's faith. His response is kind of seeing who Jesus is, knowing who Jesus is, right? Um, we see, but again, but if you can do anything, if you can, Jesus said, everything is possible for him who believes. So Jesus said to him, if you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. When we trust God is true and his promises is true, all things are are. are uh, all things, his promises are possible if we truly have faith, if we truly believe in the one that we're asking from. You know, there's two stories that stand out, one in the New Testament, one in the Old Testament. And there's one that is found, it's a story of the centurion of this soldier found in Luke chapter 7. And you don't need to turn there necessarily, but I'll share a little bit of the story with you. So you have this centurion, this Roman soldier, 
who has a high rank, who has many servants and many people that are underneath him. And it says that he has a servant that is sick, somebody that he cares very much about, that, that he um, doesn't want to see sick, wants to become well. And so he approaches um, Jesus, and it says, when Jesus had finished saying all these things, he entered Capernaum, there a centurion servant, whom his master vowed highly, was sick and about to die. The centurion heard of Jesus and sent some elders of the Jews to meet him, asking him to come and heal his servant. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him, this man's deserved to have you do this because his, he loves our nation, has built our synagogue. So Jesus went with him. He was not far from the house when the centurion sent friends to say to him, so Jesus wasn't far. He says, Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. That is why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. It's interesting. This man understood who Jesus was the kind of authority that Jesus had. But he also understood his authority um, in, in a way. Um, so it says in verse 7, that is why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you, but say the word and my servant will be healed. This is brilliant. It says, for I myself and a man under authority whom soldiers with soldiers under me, I tell this one go and he goes and that one come and he comes. I say to my servant, do this and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him. Right? He didn't say, oh, you a little faith. He didn't, oh, you believing generation. He didn't just kind of get exasperated. He was amazed by his faith. And turning to the crowd following him, he said, I tell you, I've not found such great faith in Israel than the men who had been uh, been sent returned in the house and found the servant completely well. This man had so much, I mean, he just, he understood who Jesus was that he's like, you, you, you don't even have to even come to my house. You say it's done, it's done. You speak it, it's done. And that's exactly what happened. And then you turn back to the book of Daniel, and you have these three young men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I don't know if you remember this story. And, you got this, and then also Daniel, and these are four men that were taken, when the nation of Israel was taken into captivity, they were young men, bright men, um, had a, probably a lot of greatness in them, and they were taken as to kind of be raised up within leadership, uh, within this conquering nation, within Babylon, um, and so they're basically under captivity, but they're still God-fearing young Jewish men. And it says there, there's a point um, in, I think it is, uh, Daniel chapter 3, where King Nebuchadnezzar, who thinks very highly of himself, <laughs> who, who kind of looks at his greatness, says, I'm going to basically make a, this, this statue of myself. That's going to be massive. And what I want is, when that statue is made, when the band, we're going to bring everybody out in front of the statue. When the band plays, um, basically, you're going to have to bow down and worship me, worship my statue, worship my greatness. Well, these three men had a choice to make at that moment in their lives. Do we do what the king has ordered? Do we do what the government over us has told us to do? Or... Do we stay faithful to our God who says, you shall, now have, you shall not have any other idols before me? And so they choose not to bow, right? So you have hundreds, if not thousands of people bowing, and these three men are still standing. They will not do it. And so immediately, you know, they are in trouble. Immediately, um, they are, they, if, if you disobey this, you are to be thrown into what's called a fiery furnace, you know, a really huge oven, you know, that they say was so hot 
that the men that threw them into the oven were killed because of how hot that oven got to be. But I love this response by these three men in verse 16 of chapter 3 of Daniel. It says, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king. Guys, this is amazing. He says, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God who we serve is able to save us from it. Right, so these men have an incredible faith and belief within their God that he can save. Because wait, it still goes on, he says, um, is able to save us and he will rescue us from your hand, O king. But, there's a but there, okay, that's important. It says, but even if he does not, we want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up before him, before us. Okay, so why do I mention that story? The, the, the first one, yes, we have a man who, who in faith comes to Jesus and in faith and belief knows that Jesus can heal his servant, not, not by literally touching him, but by being miles away. And, and Jesus does that, which is fantastic. And then we have three men who have that same strong belief in their God, who says our God is... Right, Anything is possible for him. He can save us. And we know the story he does, which is an amazing story. But I love their theology. I love their thinking because he says, but even if he doesn't, even if we're burnt as a crisp, right? even if we die, our God is still great. We're not going to serve you. Our God is still delivering us, but in a different way. So yeah, everything is possible for him who believes. Sometimes we see that healing happen in our lifetime. Sometimes we see that healing happen in front of us. Sometimes we don't see that physical healing happen in front of us, but we know that they will be healed as we all will completely when we're finally in the presence of our Lord. But again, do we have belief? And so if you look back at here, this father Again, this crisis of belief. But he says immediately, uh, uh, so verse 24, immediately the boy's father explained, I do believe, help me overcome my unbelief. So he's like, okay, I I do believe, help me overcome my unbelief. You know, he, I I just look at this man, and again, I can so relate to him in my life. Can you guys relate? You know, he, there is some kind of belief this man has or he wouldn't have gone to Jesus, right? But there's still something in him that's just like, Lord, if it's, if it's possible, if it's, you know, so yes, it, if it's possible, and Jesus says, if it's, yes, it's possible. Okay, I believe, help my unbelief. I believe this man's unbelief was not a rebellion against or rejection of God's promise. He didn't, did not deny God's promise. He desired it. However, it seemed too good to be true. Right? Thus he said, again, help my unbelief. Charles Spurgeon said this. It says, while men have no faith, they're unconscious of their unbelief. But as soon as they get a little faith, okay, look at this. As soon as we get a little faith, like the faith the size of a mustard seed, 
It says this, they begin to be conscious of the greatness of their unbelief. Okay, let me say that again, probably for me more than anybody else. It says, while men have no faith, they're unconscious of their unbelief. But as soon as they get just a little bit of faith, then they begin to be conscious of the greatness of their unbelief. So sometimes, yes, I'm even more unbelieving. Probably because of just how how much I I kind of probably rely on my own way of doing things. Or I'm going to, you know, money or this or that is going to then solve those problems. And I realize, no, the only person, the only person, right, that can completely satisfy my soul and bring meaning to my life is through a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. So then we go into this conversation that has had, and I just want to kind of go through here real quick. I know we're running behind, so thank you so much for just being patient. But this is really kind of when we talk about who's the greatest. So in verse 33, it says, They came to Capernaum when he was in the house. He asked them, the disciples, right? There's 12 of them. What were you arguing with on the road? What you, about on the road? So he asked this question, hey, what were you guys arguing about? And what does it say that they didn't say a thing? They were silent. Nothing. I had... Peter was just shocked. I don't know. He's talking about something. Right? I mean, they completely don't answer the question because they know they were ashamed in many ways of their response. Why? Because what they're arguing about is, right, is you know, who was going to be the greatest. It says, it says, but they kept quiet because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. The greatest among them, the greatest, you know, uh, with Jesus, who was the greatest sitting down, which I love because... Back then, when somebody taught with authority, they taught, they would sit down. So it was like, they were really listening to Jesus, but then he sat down. It was like, oh, now we're really going to listen to what he has to say, because that's how it was culturally. And so he sits down. Jesus called the 12 and said, if anyone wants to be first, he must be the very last and the servant of all. He took a little child and had him stand among them. Taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one of these little children to my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but welcomes the one who has sent me. You know, Jesus challenged us to be the last of all. The desire to be the praised and to gain recognition should be foreign to a follower of Jesus Christ. Jesus wants us to embrace last as a choice, allowing others to be preferred before us, and not only because we are forced to be last, but because we choose to be last. We choose to serve those around us. We choose to put the needs of others potentially right before our own. doesn't mean we don't take care of our needs. But a lot of times, I know in my life, I can definitely put the needs of others before mine. I can definitely take that humble approach as a servant with somebody in, our, in my life. I can, I can make those uncomfortable decisions and those uncomfortable or untimely situations, right, because Jesus asked me, to love those around me. You know, Jesus basically tries to impress upon his disciples that, uh, what his followers should look like, right? Because again, we know that he was killed and, and, and rose again, a prophecy which completely clashes with their victorious end time beliefs. Unable to comprehend what he was saying, the disciples cling to the belief that he, right, the Messiah, will rescue Israel and install a new kingdom. 
To that end, they start vying for position. To that end, they start arguing about who was going to be the, the, the greatest among them. But then Jesus cuts them short. Telling them leadership in his kingdom is not about power, but service to those who are weaker, the more vulnerable. You know, true greatness, Jesus says, is not, about, is not to be above others, but to be least of all and the servant of all. It's not to ascend the social ladder, but rather descend it. And please get me wrong. I know quite a few men and women that serve in high positions within corporations or um, you know, within their sphere of influence, and they've gotten there in many different ways. But I've seen these men and women serve those that they lead. You know, not afraid as a CEO of a company to go in there and clean toilets if they need to. You know, my son, one of his youth pastors years ago, also is a volunteer youth pastor, but was the head of a, of a huge resort in the Colorado Rocky Mountains, um, a very successful resort. And so he took a bunch of his guys and he was discipling, including my son, to that resort for the weekend. So he wasn't there as a manager. He was just kind of there um, as a youth worker, just, you know, utilizing the facility. But they got overwhelmed with some stuff, and they were short-staffed. And so my son got to see his youth pastor, somebody he incredibly admired, get in there and start cleaning toilets and making beds, you know, and, and washing windows and mirrors. And my son, I mean, he literally came to me and got home and says, Dad, he's like the manager. Like, he, he's a top guy. He didn't need to do that. He can have someone else do that. He can pull someone from here to here, you know, in order to accomplish that. But that's not what Dan did. Dan went in and he started like making hospital, you know, the beds and he started doing this and doing that. And man, I was so impressed. I was so proud, I guess in a good way, right? I've seen how Dan showed my son what true leadership looks like. See, Dan didn't care that he had a title. Right? Dan just wanted to get in there and do what needed to be done and to serve alongside of those that at times probably felt forgotten within that company. But he knew them. He knew their names and knew their families and knew their situations. Yeah, he takes a child. He welcomes that child into his arms. He asks us, that we, are we, do we welcome and care for those without status? such as a child that Jesus embraces and places before his disciples. You know, in any culture, children, in that culture specifically, are vulnerable. They're dependent on others for their survival and well-being. In the ancient world, their vulnerability was magnified by the fact that they had no legal protection. A child had no status, no rights. They had nothing to offer anyone in terms of honor or status. But it's precisely these little ones whom Jesus identifies. Whoever welcomes one of such a child in my name welcomes me right? Jesus argued that if we help those who are humble, lowly, poor, or oppressed, we will be successful from a heavenly point of view, right? We see throughout his ministry, we've seen this already in, in Mark. He associates with the last and the least of society. We see the Gentile woman he has a conversation with in Mark 7, the woman that's been bleeding for years in Mark 5, the lepers in Mark chapter 1, the raging demonics in Mark chapter 5, the tax collectors and notorious sinners in Mark chapter 1, even welcomes and makes time for his little children, much the disciples' kind of annoyance, as we'll see in Mark chapter 10, right? But he goes out of his way specifically to love and to serve 
those around him, including his disciples, where he will then wash their feet, which was incredibly difficult for them to have him do. Has anybody been part of a foot washing? Has anybody? I did with our youth group. We were on a mission trip down in Louisiana, Mississippi, after Katrina, and uh, we got in a big group of us, uh, about 35 of us sat in a big circle, and we started doing a foot washing. And as I'm kind of watching my students washing the feet of the person next to him, unbeknownst to me, one of my girls, Brittany, comes and, and literally just lays, kind of just kneels in front of me, takes off my sandals, and starts washing my feet. Now, I wasn't necessarily surprised by this because that's what we were doing at the moment, but what I was surprised by is the emotion that I was having. That's an incredibly humbling. I wanted to say humiliating, and maybe that's part of it, but it's humbling. It's, it's like, that's my feet. Like, we've been walking in dust and dirt all week, and, you know, and this, but here she is, you know, washing her youth pastor's feet. It, it's hard. It, it's, it's hard. I can see why Peter's like, no, we got to wash your feet. Can we just wash your whole body? And Jesus says, no, my feet are fine. Just, just my feet. That's great. But he says, no, but I came to serve. I'm, I'm going to wash your feet first. Wow. I'm just going to end our time with Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. And I know we're all very familiar with this passage, and, and maybe you're not, but I, I love this. He says, this is the title in, in my Bible is Imitating Christ's Humility. I'm going to start in verse 3. It says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to the interest of uh, his own interest, but also to the interest of others. And then he says, Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in, in, in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, something to be held on to, like. But, being made, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. A lot of people ask, what's, what's the gospel? That's the gospel, right? That Jesus left the glories of heaven Right? He left the glories of heaven, his, his goodness, his power, his greatness. He, he left that, and he, and he kind of didn't hold on so tightly that he couldn't hold on tightly anymore. He let it go, and it says he came among us, his creation, his people that he loves, he created, and wants to be in a relationship. So he, he, he came down and became one of us. That's what we call the incarnation, that God became man, right? became one of us, so that he can eventually, on a tree, right, die, be murdered, so that we then can be restored into relationship with him, right? His, his creation can have somebody to come back and to be a part of him. He, so he humbled himself. He didn't consider his greatness something that he needed to hold on to. Is he great? Yes. There's no doubt about that. But man, his idea of greatness it's so different than the world's idea of greatness. So our idea of greatness needs to be so different than the world's idea of greatness. Because we serve a different king. We serve a different way of 
living. Jesus set aside his greatness, <laughs> his need to be popular, to be successful, or, you know, I mean, all these things that we kind of talked about earlier. He set those aside. Can we, can we do the same? Can we set aside our desire to be great, to be known? Can we do like Jesus did and, and ask his disciples to do and ask us to do as his disciples to put the needs of others before our own when it's, when it's uncomfortable or not the right time or, Lord, I don't really like that person, to be honest with you. Are you asking me to go spend time with them, to knock on their door, to invite them for lunch, to get coffee? Yeah, Jesus is going to ask us to do some things that will make us uncomfortable, that will take us out of our comfort zones. But he does it because there's, there's a world out there that doesn't know him. And whether you like it or not, we are his hands, his feet, his mouth, his eyes, his ears. Right? We are the body. Let's be that body both individually, but also collectively, right? Let's see what we can do in our GCs. Let's see what we can do as a community, which we are, and as individuals. Who is God calling you to, to, to minister to, to love on, to get to know, um, and to be a part of so that we can serve those around us? Heavenly Father, um, Father, we can just go on and, and talk so much more about this. And, but, Father, thank you for the reminder from your word um, this morning from Jesus, from you that remind us that, that, that we are to, to, to be the greatest of all, we need to be the servant of all. Father, that we are to look at the needs of others before our own needs, that we are to consider those things, that we are to lay down our lives, we are to wash each other's feet, we are to take the lowliest of positions, we are to be the one that eats last. I mean, there's so many different ways we can look at it, but you've called us to lay down our lives to lay down our lives on a daily basis, to pick up our cross and follow you. <clears throat> so, Father, I, I just pray that you would be able to reveal that to each of us today, what that looks like for us. What, what are those things that, that I need to, that we need to cast aside so that we can be the, the, the people that you've called us to be, so that we can take those children into our arms, the lowly, the outcast, the, the vulnerable those that maybe have just been cast aside, maybe we know who those are, maybe in our family, in our workplace, in our neighborhood, in our wherever that may be, Lord, that we would love them. And ultimately, that we have an opportunity to share the gospel with them. Because, Father, you're the only thing that satisfies the yearning within our hearts that you've created. So, Father, we want people to know that. So there's an answer. There is an answer in his name. It's Jesus Christ our Lord, our King, our Savior. So, Father, just thank you for the challenge this morning. May we go away not forgetting what we've heard, like a man who looks in a mirror, walks away and forgets what he looks like, but that we would take these words, as your scripture says, and we would know that we can, the foundation is you, but we can take these and, and build upon that foundation um, and apply these things to, your life, to our lives. In your son's precious name.